Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. I'm Tammy Bruce. I'm Juan Williams. I'm Shannon Bream, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, August 10th, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Republicans on a congressional committee released more bank records, revealing more financial transfers to accounts set up by Hunter Biden from high-ranking foreign government sources. But where and how do all these dots connect, if at all? If Joe Biden did nothing wrong, we could end this investigation this week. Just give us all of your bank records, Hunter release all of his bank records, so then we can just put this to bed. But instead, they're doing the exact opposite. I'm Dave Anthony. A pro-life setback in Ohio. Voters rejected an attempt to make it harder for a ballot measure this fall to put abortion rights into the state constitution. To me, this was sort of, you know, this was this was more about like Republicans saw this thing they didn't like coming in the future, and so they wanted to make this change really quickly. And I'm Nicole Parker. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. The House Oversight Committee has released a third batch of financial documents that relate to what Republican members call the Biden family's influence peddling scheme. And the release comes after Oversight Committee lawyers questioned Hunter Biden's former business partner, Devin Archer. Archer said Hunter probably put his father on speakerphone about 20 times while speaking with business associates over the years. It also comes after Hunter's deal fell apart in which he was going to plead to misdemeanor tax evasion and would avoid a felony gun charge. It also comes after IRS whistleblowers like Joseph Ziegler told Oversight about Hunter Biden's finances as they questioned why the tax evasion did not result in felony charges. The total transfers from Hudson West 3 to everyone was $3.7 million. $3.7 million. How much money did Hunter Biden and his business associates receive from the Ukrainian company Burisma? Uh, Burisma paid to everyone involved $6.5 million. The other IRS whistleblower revealed to a different House committee a WhatsApp message Hunter sent a Chinese businessman when Biden was no longer vice president, threatening him, saying, I'm sitting here with my father. President Biden said he was not involved in that. The White House calls this third document dump, like the others, a flop, an evidence-free wild goose chase that fails to connect anything to the president himself. And prior to this latest batch, Massachusetts Democratic Congressman Jake Oshenklaus told Fox News Sunday. This focus, this obsession, I would say, on Hunter Biden is really just a whopper of whataboutism. Because the Republicans are trying to deflect, to diminish, to defend uh, Donald Trump from the grave crime of conspiracy against the Constitution of the United States. This third batch details monies going to accounts set up by Hunter and his then business partner, Devin Archer. And House Oversight says they've now found among the three batches of financial records and subpoenaed bank records, $20 million brought in to the Biden family and their business associates. In totality, it bothers me, but then there's a lot of specific things. Texas Republican Congressman Pat Fallon is on the Oversight Committee. For instance, you have a fellow named Kenez Rakijev, okay, from Kazakhstan, and he is closely associated with Karim uh, Masimov, who was the former prime minister of Kazakhstan, okay? For some unknown reason, uh, Rakijev 
wires $142,300 to one of Hunter Biden's shell companies. The very next day, that exact amount is wired to a New Jersey car dealership so Hunter Biden can have a brand new Porsche. Even his own business partner, Devin Archer, doesn't know why he got that money. That is really weird, and that's very odd. Also, Yelena Baterina, who was the former first lady of Moscow, her husband, uh, late husband now, used to be the mayor of Moscow. She's the wealthiest woman in Russia, an oligarch. Her husband was described by a U.S. ambassador as being the very epitome of a pyramid of corruption. She paid Hunter Biden's firm, uh, one of his shell companies, three and a half million dollars. After that, we know that she ended up having dinner with uh, Joe Biden. Same, by the way, with Rakijev and Masamiyov from Kazakhstan. Once they paid money, then they got to see Joe Biden. Now, uh, we also know that she is not on the publicly sanctioned list of oligarchs, even though she's one of the wealthiest people in Russia. So it's awfully coincidental. And you see that pattern as well in Ukraine with a fellow named Vadim Bazarsky, who worked for Burisma and was really the go-between between Hunter Biden and the CEO, Mikolo Zolchevsky. They paid Hunter and Devin Archer $6.5 million. They also got access to Joe Biden. And if you believe the FBI's 1023 form, and he was paid, Hunter was paid, and Joe Biden was directly paid by Zolchevsky to make sure that the investigation, the corruption investigation against Zolchevsky and Burisma went away. It did go away. Joe Biden was directly involved in making sure the prosecutor was fired, and they have never since been investigated. Okay, so let's start with the sports car that Hunter Biden supposedly gets here, right? It it might look odd, as you said, and the optics might be bad. But as you investigate, if the vice president's son wants to make deals with, uh, you know, foreign entities, it's not necessarily illegal, even if you have questions about registering as a foreign agent, right? It's, It's not there is no proof that he's done anything illegal, you know, just in being with business with these people. I think there's proof that he violated the FARA Act, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. I think there's definite proof, and I think he's liable, and he very well may eventually be indicted and convicted for, for that. And I, I believe, you know, like a think about this like a mafia don and, and the mafia family. <laughs> the, but in all, in, in all seriousness, the don usually doesn't take direct meetings and direct payments. He's got underlings. He's got lieutenants. He's got soldiers to do that. He's got a bag man. That's clearly what – if you take this, again, in totality, all the evidence, Hunter Biden's own laptop, emails and messages that he sent, whistleblower testimony, it seems very clear that he was just that for Joe Biden. He was the bag man. Go get the money, sell the influence, and then we'll make sure that I get paid behind the scenes. Right, right. But there's there's no there is no direct evidence that President Biden did receive any money, even if you are making this uh, metaphor to, to the mafia. There, there absolutely has not been any proof of that. Not yet. And again, in context, historically, you had to say Watergate. I think we'd agree that's probably the largest political scandal, greatest political scandal we've had in the United States history. I think this has the potential to eclipse it. So I feel that the preponderance of the evidence, it's more likely than not that the mm. Biden family was involved in corruption and Joe Biden was directly involved as well. Are we to the reasonable doubt threshold? Not yet. But, you know, it, we're getting there. So these dinners that seem to have occurred after money had been wired from um, the Russian oligarch um, and, and after the Kazakhstani official, the, these money wires 
come into one of three Rosemont Seneca accounts that are operated by Hunter Biden and Devin Archer, his business partner, after which Joe Biden is seen having dinner with said individuals who did the wiring at Cafe Milano, which I'm sure is very pleased to be mentioned in all of these documents. Um, So uh, again, even if the optics don't look good, what do you say about just the appearance of having dinner with these people we now know were wiring Hunter money? Oh, it's the, the, the perception. I was taught in the military perception is reality. And the vice president of the United States has to be far more careful. And I really think it was just a pattern of hubris over decades of being in power. Joe Biden was a senator in his 30s. And so he just got used to the trappings of power and, and didn't care. And, uh, you know, I, I believe when you follow the money throughout, particularly with Burisma, so his son is on a board getting paid a million dollars a year. And suddenly Joe Biden takes great interest in uh, Burisma. That's odd, right? You know, right then and there. But then, according to Devin Archer's testimony, he was on the phone with Zolchevsky. And Hunter said uh, in one report that, Dad, they need our support. Well, three days later, Joe Biden's in Ukraine demanding that the prosecutor investigating Burisma be fired. And the uh, our U.S. ambassador to the Ukraine said, and that was a guy appointed by Obama, said that Zolchevsky, the head of Burisma, was the poster child for corruption in Ukraine. And yet he gets the prosecutor fired, a guy that had seized four homes of Zolchevsky, two plots of land and a Rolls Royce. So he was on his case. And then when the prime minister of Ukraine called Joe Biden, we have the audio recording of that, and said, even though there's no evidence whatsoever that this prosecutor is doing anything wrong, you wanted him gone, he's gone. And then a billion dollars of aid was then released. That, again, I believe, if you have a preponderance of the evidence standard, you have Joe Biden dead to rights. Are you guys running the risk here of confusing people and people not following this and you don't come out with any anything more definitive or confirmed, you know, than, gee, this looks really bad and people sort of shut off and, and they don't pay attention to this and they blame Republicans for wasting their time? I would say I, it's a very good question. It's a fair question. This is the way I answer it. Uh, if you're a member of Congress on the Oversight Committee, and I'm a subcommittee chair on this committee, and we have uncovered evidence that indicates that it's more likely than not that the president of the United States is compromised by foreign nationals because he took bribes and his family took bribes. Should we or should we not investigate it further? And clearly the answer is we. it's our duty to investigate it further. If Joe Biden did nothing wrong, we could end this investigation this week. Just give us all of your bank records, Hunter release all of his bank records, so then we can just put this to bed. But instead, they're doing the exact opposite, and they're you know fighting the investigation at every turn. So I don't know how it's going to end up. But I, I would say that the investigation in, uh, under President Nixon, there was a very good chance that it would have gone nowhere. If they didn't have tapes, that smoking gun, mm. I think Richard Nixon survives Watergate. So there may be a smoking gun out there. I don't know if there will ever find one, but I'm, I'm sure as hell smelling the gunpowder. Yeah, I mean, to hear you say... you know, that you need to find out if the president is compromised. I mean, that is a very, that's a huge thing to say. It's a very hard thing for a lot of people to swallow, even if they don't like the president, Um, because that's so nefarious, right? And I see in the documents, you know, you you guys write, you know, we're we're releasing this, we're looking into this, because we, we want to find out if what we're finding out means new legislation is required, if there should be new financial disclosure rules. Regardless of what you find, 
Is anybody in oversight working on that? Will there be new legislation out of this regarding what vice presidents and presidents are allowed to do and financial disclosure rules? 100%. We have to, regardless if it's Republican or Democrat. And this investigation brings me no joy whatsoever. I mean, it doesn't. In fact, I will tell you, Jessica, and just being very candid, when I walked into the skiff a couple months ago and read the FD 1023 form, and for your listeners, that's the form when, an F- when the FBI has an informant, they fill this form out. The form itself means nothing. Why this particular form holds so much weight is because the FBI described this particular informant as highly reliable, very trusted. They've been working with him for 10 years. All of the information he's ever given them has always checked out. And they've paid him hundreds of thousands of dollars for this information. So that gives it additional weight. And when you read what he says, he directly talked to Zolchevsky, the Burisma CEO who called him and asked him for his advice, where Zolchevsky then said, hey, I paid Hunter Biden five million bucks and I paid Joe Biden five million bucks. I've talked to them both on the phone. I have recordings of those calls and I can prove how I paid him the 10 million. I made it super complicated so nobody could find out for 10 years. And in return for that, they're going to get this investigation. Uh, they're going to make sure this goes away. And that's precisely what happened, by the way. It went away. So that made my heart sink. I felt physically ill. I mean, this is as dishonest as, of graph as you can get, direct bribery. And as an American, that made my heart sink. And again, that, that is also not fully confirmed, right? This was a, a heard by a source. No, yeah. So it's not hearsay. That's The, the Democrats are trying to... Uh, <laughs> trying to say, throw a bunch of smoke and mirrors at, at this. This is the informant. We don't know the informant's name. He is saying that he directly talked to Zolchevsky. Oh. They had a Burisma, directly. And Zolchevsky talked to him. And Zolchevsky tells him that he did all this. So why would you, in a, in a confidential conversation with somebody who you're asking their advice, and by the way, the, the informant, and everybody can read the 1023 now because it's public. The informant tells Zolchevsky, don't deal with those people talking about the Bidens. You are crazy. Just hire a lawyer and try to get this, you know, corruption investigation to go away in Ukraine. Don't get these people involved. And the guy goes, well, too late. I already did. And they, they coerced me. They wanted the money. So I gave it to them. But it's going to be OK. They're going to make it go away. And they did. I mean, it did go away. So it's really, really odd that every single bit of information we get, everything always fits together and always confirms things that we already know. They never contradict each other. That's really weird in and of itself. Texas Republican Congressman Pat Fallon, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jessica. God bless. And those are great questions. I take care. This is Nicole Parker with your Fox News commentary coming up. Democracy won. That's President Biden's reaction to Tuesday's special election in Ohio, where 57% of voters said no to issue one, rejecting a Republican attempt to make it more difficult to amend the state constitution by requiring future ballot questions get 60% of the vote to pass instead of the simple majority now. Democratic Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther says... People came out and sent a very strong message to an extremist supermajority in the legislature uh, that they believe in 
uh, fairness. They believe in freedom. Secretary of State Frank LaRose, a Republican, tells Fox. The other side prevailed. This is just one battle in a much larger war, though, because the all-out assault on Ohio is coming from the radical left. There's a push to codify abortion rights into the state constitution, and... They, they want to bring a minimum wage increase, a massive increase in minimum wage to Ohio that would put Ohioans out of work. And even the mayor of Cleveland said last week, he said the quiet part out loud, they want to do common sense gun reform, which means they want to disarm law-abiding citizens. But that abortion rights issue looms first in November. And pro-choice groups have already won similar ballot initiatives in seven other states since the Supreme Court ruling let states ban or severely restrict abortions. To me, this was sort of, you know, this was this was more about like Republicans saw this thing they didn't like coming in the future. And so they wanted to make this change really quickly. Kyle Kondik is managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia Center for Politics. Republicans had done away with August elections as recently as last year because they're, you know, low turnout, sleepy affairs typically But then they brought August elections back for this election specifically, I think, to try to sneak this past the voters. And it didn't work because not only did it get defeated, but turnout was really pretty robust. It was about three million voters, which was about three three uh, quarters of what the total turnout was in the midterm last year in Ohio. So I would say that places like Kentucky and uh, Montana and Kansas, places that like Ohio are Republican leaning at the at the federal level, um, you know, the abortion rights side did well in those fights. Republicans have been pushing for this in Ohio to raise the bar on amending the Constitution. Did they not get their vote out? I mean, 57 percent is a pretty high number to reject Republicans in a state that they lead in generally. So there were a number of things happening, um, and we've got a, a, an analysis of this that's that's going to it's posted on our Crystal Ball newsletter. Um, first of all, if you compare the turnout to 2022, which was an election there, Republicans won everything on the ballot. Um, the closest race was JD Vance's six point Senate um, victory. The other races were you know were double digit wins for Republicans. But if you compare the turnout, basically. Um, the big urban counties at Cuyahoga, where Cleveland is, Franklin, where Columbus is, and Hamilton, where Cincinnati is, um, they all had more robust turnout relative to the state on issue one than they did last year. So that's important for the you know for the Democratic side. Also, um, Appalachia, Southeast Ohio, um, all of those counties had poorer turnout relative to 2022 than the state as a whole did. And uh, that's you know Appalachia is sort of a um, is a clearly red trending region that's become very Republican at the presidential level, but turnout and margins were not as good as they needed to be for Republicans in that part of the state. Issue one did worse than usual re- Republican performance in almost every county um, in, in the state. So it was a combination of, I think, the Democrats had a turnout advantage compared to 2022, but I also think there was a persuasion problem for Republicans. Ohio is one of the Republican led states that, after last year's Supreme Court ruling, banned most abortions once cardiac activity is detected around six weeks into a pregnancy. But that law was successfully challenged in court and remains blocked ahead of the November vote on whether to put a woman's right to an abortion into the Ohio Constitution. You know, it is a little bit different from from the vote we just had in that basically the pro-abortion rights position was no on the Tuesday vote, and it's going to be yes on the November vote. And sometimes in ballot issues, um, you generally prefer to have the no side as opposed to the yes side. So that's reversed for the two sides in this upcoming election. You know, that said, I think that this abortion rights issue is, is 
probably fairly easy to understand, maybe even more easy to understand than um, what was going on with this, you know, changing these the, the constitutional amendment threshold. So maybe that that kind of like status quo bias you sometimes see in favor of the no position, maybe that's mitigated to some degree. Um, there probably were some Republicans and people who may not be uh, pro-choice on the abortion question um, who voted no on issue one because they didn't want to remove their own power to vote on future constitutional amendments or potentially to vote on the winning side of future constitutional amendments. So, you know, maybe that presents the uh, anti-abortion rights side with room to grow on this issue. Then again, maybe because abortion specifically on the ballot, um, abortion rights supporters will be more motivated to come out than even they were in this August election. There are a lot of different moving pieces, but the, the sort of broader takeaway is that since the Dobbs decision, we've seen these ballot issues in many states across the country that, again, are either directly or indirectly about abortion, and the abortion rights side has generally done very well in those. So I think the burden of proof is on the anti-abortion rights side, you know, the Republicans in Ohio, to see if they can come back and defeat this abortion rights amendment after basically getting swatted on issue one on Tuesday. Arizona, there's a push there to try to get the abortion rights issue on the ballot for 2024. And that is a move for a state that might be another battleground state like it was in 2020, a very close race between Republicans and Democrats in a key electoral state. How much of a factor could that be next year? Um, You know, sometimes there's a belief that that ballot issues can maybe help spur turnout. I'd say the most famous example of that. Um, was 2004 when, you know, back at a time where people's opinions on same-sex marriage were a lot different and much more conservative than they are now. But um, you had a push by Republicans to put same-sex marriage bans on the ballot in a lot of different places. Um, that said, the research on that is not entirely clear that they made, you know, that big of a difference in the ultimate outcome, which was a, you know, it's a close but clear uh, victory, re-election victory for um, George W. Bush at the time. Um, you know, I think that in, you know, there, there are a number of states where it's, where it's pretty hard to have a statewide ballot issue um, in places where you can't have statewide ballot issues or constitutional amendments. Uh, you know, Michigan and Ohio are two good examples. Um, I, I do think that that's sort of the clearest way for abortion rights supporters to, you know, to basically protect um, access to, to abortion rights. And I would imagine that in other states where you can see that those sorts of issues get on the ballot, that you'll continue to, to see that because, again, the, the success rate so far for the abortion rights side in these battles have been, have been pretty good. There have been some analysts who said that what happened in Michigan in 2022 helped that ballot measure helped get Democrats a sweep in the elections in Michigan. Do you agree with that? Uh, I, I'm sure I would imagine it helped to some degree. I, you know, I don't think like Gretchen Whitmer would have lost or something if it hadn't been on the ballot. But, um, you know, Michigan was one of the states where you, you had a you know good Democratic electorate turnout. You know, a lot of other places across the country um, where the stakes were not as high saw Republicans, you know, do much better and Democrats kind of check out. But um, but, you know, again, I think it's kind of a hard thing to prove or disprove. But, um, you know, again, the abortion rights uh, uh, amendment did a little bit better than, than Gretchen Whitmer did in her uh, in her reelection. So, um, you know, there were a, a small number of people who, who split their tickets on it. 
Um, but it also was a was a very good year for Democrats in in Michigan. You know, in Ohio um, is coming up in a, in an odd numbered year, so it, it it's not going to have any larger bearing on you know statewide election results because there's nothing. Um, there aren't you know the big statewide races are not on the ballot uh, this year. They're up, they're up next year, including uh, U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown, a Democrat who's who's uh, you know I think an embattled uh, uh, incumbent uh, Democratic senator for next year. The pro-life movement, which celebrated the Supreme Court decision, has had all these now setbacks on ballot measures, also in uh, in courts in some cases in in the in the states where they think and they believe they should have abortion bans because they're Republican-led. What are they doing? Are they rethinking strategies on how to get people to vote their way? This is they got their Supreme Court ruling, but now they have to move into a different game plan in some ways. I mean, look, I mean, I think that the public's opinion on abortion is, is pretty nuanced and you could sort of look at it in, in different ways based on how polls questions are asked and whatnot. But I do think the Democratic position on abortion is just closer to where the sort of middle of the country is on the issue than the Republican position. And I don't think that um, the pro-life side has figured out a way to, uh, you know, to, to 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 win these ballot issues. I mean, here we've got, you know, again, we've got another test here in Ohio. We'll see what they um, what they come up with. And I would expect it to be a, um, a an expensive and nasty fight. Um, you know, again, I think the, 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 the pro-abortion rights folks start with an advantage and then we'll see if, uh, um, if, if, if the pro, you know, the, the anti-abortion rights people can, can, can catch up. But, uh, you know, so far they, they were persuasive in getting a, you know, conservative Supreme Court to throw out Roe v. Wade, but they've been less persuasive at the state level in terms of convincing voters to go along with them. One of the things that I know Republicans in Ohio have been talking about is they're calling this upcoming ballot measure extreme because it would take away parental rights for minors to have an abortion. Is that something that could maybe help them when they're trying to find people who, as you say, have nuanced abortion positions? I think what you're describing is going to be a big part of the campaign, and and we'll see how effective it is. Is it clear at this point, after ballot issues, the percentage of people who are pro-life no matter what and pro-choice no matter what, and then what you have in the middle that it would be nuanced? If you ask the, the sort of general parameters in Ohio of the um, of this abortion rights issue um, on, in polling, you know, it's been getting in the 50s in terms of in terms of a level of support. Democrats want to emphasize the word ban. Uh, uh, Republicans want to emphasize, uh, you know, basically not having, you know, a, a democratic position of not really having any, any restrictions on abortion at all, or at least that's what both sides will argue. Um, and again, it is nuanced, but I think the reason why the uh, anti-abortion rights folks keep having problems here is that their position is just further away from where the mainstream is on abortion than the democratic position is. And also, um, you know, we just had, we, we were a country that had um, abortion rights protections essentially protected by the Supreme court. And those protections are now gone. And sometimes when someone loses something, they're more motivated to try to get it back than, than, uh, you know, than the side that's gained. And so the pro-choice side is the one who lost on, on Dobbs and is more interested in restoring what they once had. So that I think that motivation is also important to understand here. Kyle Kondik, managing editor for the Sabato Crystal Ball at the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. Great to get your insight. Thanks so much. Hey, thank you.
Meet the American who taught Jack Daniel to make whiskey. Enslaved distiller Nathan Nearest Green taught Tennessee whiskey making to Jack Daniel. Here's his extraordinary American story. Nathan Nearest Green was born in Maryland around 1820. He was either born into slavery or later became a slave. Few details are known about his early life, but what is known is that he distilled whiskey on the farm of Master Dan Call, a minister in Lynchburg, Tennessee, before the Civil War. A preteen Jack Daniel, meanwhile, an orphaned boy, came to work on the farm around the year 1858. Daniel was the youngest of 10 children. His mother died soon after he was born. On the farm, young Jack Daniel worked as a chore boy for the preacher, milking cows, feeding slop to the pigs, getting water from the spring house, and all the other things farmhands do, according to nearestgreen.com. With the master's blessing, Nearest Green began teaching young Daniel the art of whiskey distilling, including sour mash fermentation, charcoal mellowing, and barrel aging, all hallmarks of Jack Daniel's whiskey today. And back then, newly emancipated Green was hired as first master distiller when Jack Daniel opened his distillery in 1866. Charles K. Cowdery, the author of the book Bourbon Straight, told Fox News Digital, it's a story of black and white working together, boiled down to something really that simple, and that is human. Today, Jack Daniels Tennessee Sour Mash Whiskey is the top-selling whiskey and most globally recognized spirit made in the United States. Today as well, Green's influence is gaining a wider audience, thanks in large part to the nearest Green Distillery, in Shelbyville, Tennessee. It earned critical acclaim for its products and praise for its devotion to whiskey history since its opening in 2017. Green died in 1890. No known picture of him exists, and his final resting place is unknown. But here's something else truly amazing. Green's descendants have worked at Jack Daniels Distillery since its start, including Jerome Vance, Debbie Staples, who just recently retired, and Jackie Harden. But at that distillery in Lynchburg, Tennessee, it really is local people working there for years. You can go to the lifestyle section at foxnews.com to find more of these incredible stories. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Gelosi. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Nicole Parker. What's on your mind? The FBI is not the revered institution it once was, but it can be again. I was an FBI special agent for more than 12 years and considered it a calling until I walked away at the end of last year. Unfortunately, the FBI changed significantly as it became politically and socially weaponized. I joined the FBI to fight crime, but over time found myself being bombarded with partisan politics and social movements swirling around me, which I wanted no part of. At the same time, Americans lost trust in this important institution and morale plummeted. I realized under the current leadership that no one was going to stop the FBI from continuing on this trajectory, and I lacked faith things would improve. As I watched FBI Director Christopher Wray's July 12th testimony before Congress, it reconfirmed my decision to leave the career I once loved. He entirely glossed over the glaringly detrimental mistakes of some within the FBI that have damaged the reputation of the entire organization. Unless Ray admits there are ongoing politicization problems at the Bureau and holds the culprits accountable, nothing will change. 
According to Ray, everything at the FBI is functioning as it should, and there are no issues to address. However, millions of Americans and many retired and current FBI employees respectfully disagree with his assessment that all is well at the Bureau. They are aware that offenders within the agency are contributing to the current weaponization of our federal government. This has been seen in the FBI's involvement in the censorship of Americans through big tech, misuse of FISA, subservience to the Department of Justice's demands, blatant disparate treatment of individuals and investigations based on their political affiliation or social views, suppression of information or investigations related to the Biden family's foreign business dealings, and other notable actions. Let me be clear, not everyone at the FBI is politically weaponized. In fact, it's as if there became two FBI. FBI One consists of hardworking employees who join the Bureau to protect Americans, uphold the Constitution, and equally enforce the law. They have stayed true to their sworn oath. Their personal views are set aside as they diligently work to conduct investigations by the book and solve crimes by following the evidence wherever it may go. FBI One constitutes the majority of the FBI. Typically, they're the rank-and-file employees who work tirelessly in the field offices. On the other hand, FBI 2 is made up of employees who use their law enforcement authority to push their political or social agendas. Their ideologies dictate their decision-making processes, whether it be in the selection of which cases they cherry-pick for the FBI to investigate, how the investigations will be conducted, what intelligence reports will be generated, and who will be promoted. They include executive management in Washington, D.C., and trickle all the way down to professional staff in various field offices. Unfortunately, the politicized actions of FBI 2 destroy the character of the entire FBI by undermining the incredible work of FBI 1. There are calls to abolish the FBI. Having worked at the Bureau, I witnessed and participated in crucial work performed by FBI 1. I do not believe abolishing is the answer. Brave whistleblowers, FBI 1 employees, and many members of Congress are working relentlessly to right this ship. Having taken a step back, I am optimistic and believe there are numerous plausible solutions that could be implemented to solve the Bureau's problems. Respectable current and retired Bureau employees love this country and will not allow their FBI to capitulate to political and social movements. Where there's a will, there's a way. And for the honorable employees at the FBI, keep holding the line with fidelity, bravery, and integrity. Keep the faith, America. Nicole Parker, former FBI Special Agent. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos-Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.